Hey, what's going on? It's at the letters for Wednesday, February 23rd. Arden Zwelling, Ben Nicholson-Smith, our producers are Christian Ryan and Nick Andrade. Thanks so much for listening. Ben, as we sit here midday on Wednesday, we are within this week of daily meetings in Jupiter, Florida, between the MLBPA and, and the league's owners, which have locked out uh, its players and caused the beginning of spring training to be delayed and i suppose the good news is that those meetings are daily and that the the frequency has increased and multiple proposals are being exchanged um but the bad news is that each of those proposals just seems to be increasingly marginal and incremental ever more so than the last and every move forward by either side on on one issue includes a move backward on another um so it really just doesn't feel like uh we're getting anywhere in this thing it seems like a lot of talk and wrangling uh without any real substantive progress being made towards a resolution does that sound accurate to you I think that's very fair. I think that's fair. And it's unfortunate. I mean, this should be a period of time where pitchers and catchers are doing what live BPs probably around this time. Dude, there would be a game on Saturday. I think the Blue Jays were supposed to open the Grapefruit League schedule on Saturday. Yeah. So then maybe we're into, you know, an intra-squad game, live BPs. That's the kind of stage of spring that we should be at. We're not there. I know for fans that that really sucks. And so definitely want to acknowledge that. You know, my optimism when we recorded the last time was a little higher than it is right now. I thought at that point, I think we said March 9th, that things would be in motion. There's going to have to be a big shift in how talks move for that to happen. It's still possible as as we record this for some sort of agreement to happen. But you're very right to say that these talks have developed incrementally. You know, it's all right, we're going to have seven picks determined by draft lottery. Okay, we'll go up to four. Like they're moving by one at a time and that's better than nothing but until they touch the cbt there's really no point there's it's all a preamble to the cbt really and you know in the meantime someone yesterday said to me this is someone on the on the major league baseball side of things said that the proposal that they'd received from the players was a quote bad proposal and you know they're they're disappointed by it they didn't like it they they thought it moved backwards so of course the players would frame it differently they would say that the owners waited six weeks didn't do anything so you know we're at i don't want to call it a standstill but it is not moving quickly and that means that we're likely to see a delayed season yeah, I'm, I'm having a hard time with the owners saying that the uh, the proposal is disappointing or that they're overwhelmed um, because just in my opinion, what the players are asking for is perfectly reasonable and the players are actually engaging on the things that are important to the owners, um, such as expanded postseason, such as CBT, like uh, aside from those issues, like I, I'm going to need the owners to articulate like exactly what they want out of this and exactly what they are bargaining for because i feel like the players have done a really good job of expressing what they're after in these negotiations they want more money for young one to three year service time players who make up the majority of of the player population they want more incentives for um, clubs to field competitive teams they want to curtail service time manipulation they want a, a higher competitive balance tax with less severe penalties i mean it, realistically they probably wouldn't want a 
out of balance tax at all, but the owners yep. desperately want it. So the players have said, okay, we will give you a competitive balance tax, but we're going to need to like increase that um, because things increase over time because like, there's more revenue in the game now because inflation's a thing because everything's more expensive. And because clearly these penalties have dissuaded teams from spending into the CBT and caused them to treat it as a de facto salary cap when you see in 2021 what only two teams surpassed it and five teams got within a few like five million dollars of it five teams were over 205 and under 210 which is the threshold so like clearly this is something that's being treated as a salary cap but the players are still negotiating on that so i think the players have been like pretty clear about what they're after in this for the ownership side it's like we're kind of left to interpret it on our own and my interpretation would be clearly ownership wants an expanded postseason because like massive revenue comes from that it seems like they want advertising on uniforms okay mm-hmm. a little bit of revenue comes from that and then the cbt as i just discussed but the players are engaging on those things and i don't think that the owners are really meaningfully engaging on what the players are after here so like i'm not really sure what the owners are bargaining for other than like further solidifying their control over how much of revenue they can funnel to players yeah i think that the fundamental tension here as i see it is that the owners want the status quo like the status quo benefit from the status quo and the players want to change it so you know the owners the reason that they don't have as long or as clearly outlined a list of demands is that they prefer to keep things the way they are it's a very profitable industry um, obviously two down years in a row consecutively and the possibility of a third depending on how things unfold here but it's a great industry to be in, despite what Rob Manford might say. It's extremely yeah. lucrative. You know, whether your team is the one that that you know recoups those gains on the profit and loss sheets is really secondary because you have the development, you have the long-term growth and franchise value. It's a great industry. So the owners are happy. The players want to change things up. So that's the tension as I see it. And you know, we'll see. The owners haven't really wanted to give and they haven't given on the major issues so far. So we're talking about minimums and CBT. And until there's movement on minimums and CBT, then there's really a long way to go. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about what expanded postseason would mean for the owners, something that the players have put on the table. I mean, we are talking about multi-billion dollar broadcast deals here i mean mlb and fox's deal is over five billion dollars uh the turner deal is over three billion dollars and in prior cbas that revenue from broadcast rights has gone directly to owners i mean the the players have received a share of gate revenues um an increasing share depending on how well their team does but players haven't tapped into that broadcast revenue so for owners to come back and say well we are disappointed and underwhelmed and we think that you know the players side like we think their offer is a bad offer their proposal is a bad proposal because players are looking to increase minimum salaries by like thirty thousand dollars a season in the grand scheme of things league revenue from postseason broadcast rights we are talking about billions of dollars here something the players have offered up and the owners are like digging in their heels over tens of thousands of dollars right now like i'm i'm you know i'm having a hard time sympathizing with that 
<laughs> yeah, I mean, definitely the owners are they're in a good spot, financially speaking. Optically is a different question. I think that the way they would frame it, and I'm just presenting this, but the way they would frame it is those tens of thousands add up over time, especially when you have a lot of players that are in that bracket and you're talking about a five-year agreement. So they would value those seemingly small concessions in the hundreds of millions, which is fine. And yet to me, that's fair enough. But really what this comes down to is you have, in my opinion, a process that has become overly transactional. It is very much, we value the super two threshold. You know, if it's at 22% of two plus players, and we're going to increase that to 33% for argument's sake, you place a value on that, and then you take it, you know, from somewhere else on the other side. So it's very transactional. But to me, it doesn't have to be a zero-sum game. And in fact, I think the entire industry and the entire sport could grow if these sides could really look at it a bit more holistically and find room for everyone to win here and for the fans to actually win as well instead of, you know, feeling like they're on the outside and just a tool for someone to profit off of. Yeah, you know what else like adds up over time along with the minimum salaries and along with, by the way, the owners made a proposal to curtail the number of minor leaguers in each organization. Minor leaguers who like, in, like on a high end earn 20 25k per season on the high end many of them don't even reach that like you know what else adds up over time franchise values add up over time by quite a bit i would say like look we're you know we work for sportsnet and we're owned by rogers communications who also own the toronto blue jays purchased the toronto blue jays right around the turn of the century for uh like 165 million dollars the toronto blue jays today are worth close to two billion dollars well over 1.5 billion um so like you know you're talking about like a 65 70 million dollar return year over year on that investment yeah that adds up over time that's pretty good aside from like the money that you make operating the business and the revenue that you generate from merchandise and obviously the share of broadcast rights and that we've we've been talking about and all that so like that also adds up over time as well but like i you know i just think that like my last thing on this, like I think that we were always coming to this place. Like I think that owners always wanted to, to get to the point where there was this pressure of regular season games being canceled. So I, do, you know, when you talked about how um, long it took owners to like actually make a proposal uh, when uh, you know the lockout began on December first, I mean, forty three days, right? Like I think that was scripted. I think that was by design. And I think the incremental nature of some of these or all these proposals is scripted and by design. I don't think owners are making proposals that they truly believe players are going to accept. I think they're making proposals that just pass the legal definition of bargaining in good faith. And I think owners know like how much they would have to move in order to actually make progress towards a resolution. But I think owners want that pressure of regular season games being missed to increase and they want players to face it and they want to use that leverage in order to get what they want. So, you know, realistically, is it frustrating to like be where we are right now? Yes, absolutely. But I don't know if we ever should have expected anything differently because I think that this has all happened exactly, you know, in the the way the owners would have drawn it up in their playbook. Exactly. A hundred percent agree with that. It is straight out of the playbook. This is not a coincidence that it's happened this way. It's an $11 billion industry. They have some extremely determined, bright, uh, strategic people running this process. And so... Yeah, Dan Halem is not doing this by a whim. This is a team of people that are operating 
very strategically. And you're right. If they wanted to have a, a bargaining session without pressure, they could have done so on December the 13th. They could have done so on January the 13th. They don't have to be locking the players out in the first place. They could just continue as as things are. But you're right. They do want to have that leverage even these requests for mediation, right? I mean, I've heard from people on the side of the players who describe that as eyewash, right? You know, baseball terminology for essentially something that's unnecessary, but you're doing it for the optics because you think it looks good. And whether that lands with people, whether anyone actually believes that these requests for mediation are sincere, I don't know. But that's something that the owners want out there. And mediation, it's only going to get you as far as the people who are in that room. It's not binding. As if there is like going to be a vote at the end of this, though, right? Like when a resolution is reached, we're, we're all going to vote on who won. <laughs> As if we're I, like, what, what does it matter? Like winning the PR war, really, like the leaks and the, you know, like you said, you know, the eyewash. Like it's not like at the end of this, we're, we don't have a say. We're not all going to vote and say, yeah, the league where they bargained better. Like, no, we're just all going to watch baseball again. Like the posturing, I don't really like, who is that for? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, Certainly, last time, the owners won. I mean, that's yeah. that's pretty clear. And the, that's motivating the desire on the part of the players for change right now. But it didn't matter what I thought of it or what a fan no. thought of it. Right? Yeah, I I wonder if it's, I mean, you, you certainly look at some, and I'm not a lawyer, obviously, but you look at some of the possibilities for, um, you know, grievances to be filed or lawsuits. Um, it could be, you know, something that, you know, if they are doing these very public requests for mediation, does that get them some sort of extra breathing room in That's that future point. scenario? I, I don't know. I'm sure that I know we have a lot of lawyers who listen to ATL um, or, or a certain amount. I'm sure that they could explain that to us a little bit better, but it crosses the mind. No, that's a good point. The MLB could point back in that case and say, well, we tried, right? Like We tried to, to get a third party in here. Um, you know, I will just say, like, I know I've made this point before, but like losing regular season games in April, which like seems, I don't know if it's an inevitability, but it seems like it's going to happen. <laughs> that we've got this sort of this deadline MLB has imposed of February 28th of you need a resolution by that point in order to preserve opening day. I, that's just arbitrarily chosen right like you know we've seen three weeks spring training camps before if there's an agreement on like march 2nd you know are they gonna really bang opening day i doubt like i feel like they'll find a way so i don't know how firm that deadline is but the point remains players are hurt disproportionately by the cancellation of april regular season games more than owners are players make the majority of their money from game checks from regular season games played owners make the majority of their money from national television revenue the majority of which comes via postseason and later in the season so like yes would owners sacrifice some gate receipts and merchandise sales opening day is always a you know well-attended game you know the concessions like yes absolutely but in april outside of opening day not the best attended games in the MLB season. The weather's lousy. Uh, you know, kids are still in school. Also, by the way, in MLB, there's in a lot of markets where you can't draw a crowd on like a beautiful day in July, let alone, uh, you know, an eight degree Celsius day in April. But also, owners claw a lot of that lost revenue back by decreasing expenses. They're not paying what it costs to operate their stadium, right? Like food costs, staffing, 
turning on the lights, security, all these things, insurance. And they're also not paying their biggest expense of all, by the way, player salaries. So missing games in April really disproportionately hurts players a lot more than it hurts owners, which is why I think we are where we are right now and why the next week, two weeks, three weeks is going to be an interesting test of whether the players can stomach that pain of of not receiving checks from April games and then just how far into the season owners are prepared to go with canceling the regular season schedule or or delaying it at least uh, because it seems like that is something they are prepared to do at the onset at least. Yeah, and, and players know this. Players are prepared for this. They have been preparing for this, putting aside uh, licensing uh, revenue to kind of build up a, a bit of a war chest. Um, of course, the Players Association was expecting this in November. So they communicated to players what to expect, how to prepare. I've seen the documents. They're telling them, like, don't rack up big debts. Watch what you're spending on cars and clothes and, and credit cards. Like, this is in the communication from the Players Association to their membership so i mean we'll see like you say how far that resolve goes but the players are are well aware of this and they've got stronger leadership now clearly i mean bruce meyer's been a definite change in tone since um since the last time that's a significant shift for the players but the owners are smart too and the owners have hired i mean say what you will about rob manfred he's a very strong negotiator to have on your team if that's the way you want to do business like he has skills and i know people are not fans of rob manfred but like he's a successful labor lawyer and same with dan halem same with this entire team so now we have the standoff We are a Toronto Blue Jays podcast, so we should talk about the the Toronto Blue Jays and not just drone on about the lockout uh, forever. But we're going to talk about the Blue Jays and the lockout and the CBA negotiations because it does seem like we are at least to have an idea of some of the structures that will come out of a, a new CBA and what it might look like. And we just want to take a quick look at a couple of those and how they would impact the Blue Jays going forward. So Ben, what what would some of the the CBT uh, ramifications to come out of this this lockout mean for for the Blue Jays in 2022 and beyond? You know, I almost look at it as how does it impact the Yankees and Red Sox because historically the Yankees and Red Sox have been the teams in the Jays division and really in baseball that are most willing to push up against and, and potentially past the luxury tax or the CBT. So. If the Yankees and Red Sox are spending up to that level, then where that level sits is really important. And right now, the owners are offering very modest increases in the CBT. Players want it to go up more substantially, as we already discussed. So to me, it's going to be really interesting to see where it sits. Mark Shapiro has said that he doesn't see the Blue Jays pushing past it anytime soon um, or pushing up to it. So we're not expecting that the Jays are quite going to be at that level, but you know, when you look at the Yankees, it's a pretty big variable. You know, that 214 to 245, that's a $30 million difference. That's one elite player that the Yankees may or may not be able to get, depending on where that sits in the end. Yeah, instead of going out and grabbing like a Rugnetto door to like fill a gap, you're grabbing a, a better player. Yeah. And it's worth noting, like the Yankees and Red Sox, both teams that were among those five that were above 205 but below 210 
in recent years. Um, and two teams also that have surpassed the CBT, but also the two teams that ducked under it to avoid penalties. So the threshold goes up, which I think it should. And if the penalties come down, which I think it should. But some combination of that, that's going to create more flexibility for the Red Sox and Yankees. We know they yeah. have the financial resources to spend more than they do now. And I think they have the ownership willingness to do so as well, as long as it doesn't incur you know crazy tax penalties or coughing up draft picks or an international slot and and things like that. So yeah, that's probably bad for the Blue Jays, particularly because like the Blue Jays aren't going to spend into the CBT without a new stadium or without like a major renovation of the current stadium in order to uh, generate a lot more revenue out of uh, Bremner Boulevard. Um, and really, that just like will continue to increase the pressure on the Blue Jays to like keep acquiring young impact talent, whether that's through the draft, whether that's internationally, whether that's with creative trades, um, ways to find like kind of like the cost effective one to three year service time players to keep like supplementing the roster because the Blue Jays aren't going to be able to spend with the Yankees and the Red Sox and the Blue Jays have spent a lot in the last couple of off seasons. So like I, you know, barring a like dramatic and unprecedented increase in payroll, like the Blue Jays are going to have to continue to like draft, acquire, develop, and supplement at a really high level if they're going to remain competitive in the AL East. Yeah, and I think, you know, this is all said with the understanding that, you know, we're working off what Mark Shapiro has said publicly, right? So these things could potentially change. Rogers, which owns Sportsnet as well, could decide to spend a lot more. They could decide to spend at the level of the Yankees and Red Sox. But like you say, that hasn't happened historically. So we're working off the assumption they are not pushing up to that level And as long as they aren't, you know, if you're purely a fan of the Toronto Blue Jays, you probably don't want to see the CBT rise all that much. Now, as you and I are talking about their kind of bigger picture questions here about the game and what's fair and players and the value they bring. But if you're purely a Blue Jays fan, you probably want to see it at 214. Yeah. Are you a fan of the player or the laundry? Right. Because if you like the laundry, yeah, you want to see the CBT stay where it's at. But if you like players and you want to see like players share in this game's revenue which was nearly 11 billion dollars in uh 2019 then you want to see it rise i want to talk expanded playoffs because that seems like a certainty at the end of this is obviously the the player's biggest card to play it makes the biggest difference to owners i really don't see any cba without an expanded postseason of some sort going forward whether that's 12 teams whether that's 14 teams we'll see um mlb has proposed 14 teams with three divisions the best divisional winner in terms of record goes forward like gets a bye to the divisional series and then the other two division winners get to pick their opponents in a three-game wildcard series then obviously the two teams that don't pick and are not picked end up playing each other as well three-game wildcard series the players in a proposal and this is a pretty outdated proposal so maybe there's you know things have changed but their proposal was 12 teams top two teams in the league advance straight to the ds and then the four remaining play a couple of wildcard series so those are kind of the structures that have been talked about but like ben i don't know I, it's hard for me to find 
an argument that says this is anything but good for the Blue Jays. Like we have just uh, gone over, you know, the annual challenges of playing in a division with the Red Sox and Yankees who have massive spending power, not to mention the Tampa Bay Rays, one of baseball's like most cunning and innovative organizations. Uh, you know, the a plus 600 winning percentage since 2019, um, one of MLB's best farm systems. And oh, by the way, speaking of farm systems, Baltimore Orioles have built themselves a pretty good farm system. You look at some of the rankings that are coming out this time of year, you know, pick your source. The Orioles are generally a top five system. Some have them number one in in baseball. So like the Orioles are kind of bouncing back and they're coming out of a rebuild. And it's fair to expect them to be a lot more competitive going forward than than they have been so you know we we literally just watched a season in which the blue jays won 91 times and missed the playoffs with a record that would have like easily won the nl east where uh the atlanta braves won a world series with uh like 88 wins and winning that division by like a half dozen games so for the blue jays like just in the al east life has never been easy it isn't easy it's never going to be easy there's no reason to believe it's going to be easier going forward um so having a couple more postseason spots up for grabs like i don't see a way that that could be a negative for the blue jays i do think you have to kind of twist yourself pretty hard to come up with you know reasons why you want to root against expanded playoffs i like expanded playoffs i think i've probably said before on atl i like the idea of going to 12 14 to me is too many i do not like that but either way it's going to happen they're going to expand and so it's a question of how many teams so you know, it's interesting with the Jays because I think if you were to trace things back historically, and I haven't done this, but I'd be curious to see what the results are. I would guess that the Jays would be one of the teams that would historically have benefited most from one or two more teams being in the playoffs. Like you think about not only this past season, but some of those years like with Delgado and Halliday in the 2000s where they totally. had some good records, you know, they had some really good teams but the Yankees and Red Sox were just too good. So they were on the outside looking in. So historically, they would have benefited. Now, you could make an argument that going forward, the Jays, I mean, they are one of the best teams in the American League. So the more you expand it, the more room you have for some Cleveland or Seattle to come in with less talent, short series, upend a more talented Blue Jays team. So yeah, you could make that case. But I think by and large, it's a good thing. Yeah, those early 2000s clubs that were like routinely winning mid to high 80s uh, would have really benefited from this, I think, because the Blue Jays would win like 85, 86 games, 87 games, which would be just good enough to finish third in their division with the Yankees and Red Sox ahead of them. But if there had been a expanded spot, maybe at that point, J.P. Ricciardi or Anthopoulos, whoever's running the team at the time, they say, all right, we're going to push in a little harder. We're actually going to buy at the deadline to try to bolster this team because they would have known that a spot existed there. At the very least, it's easier to make the argument up to ownership to to yeah. push further in and increase payroll in that in that case. Um yeah, and and I, I understand like what you're saying. Like, yeah, maybe the Blue Jays get into a wild card series with uh, you know the Twins or something and get swept out. But like, that's just the nature of the postseason, man. Like, that's why you're just trying to get in, right? Like, that's it's ultimately like. And I, my view of you know, to me, the the regular season champion is the champion of baseball because I think it's way <laughs> more impressive if the San Francisco Giants win 107 games over a 162 game schedule. Than if the Atlanta Braves get hot for three weeks, like the MLB postseason is it's March Madness 
like way more than people want to admit yeah. that it is. It's just a, a crazy, wacky tournament. And if you're hot for the tournament, man, like anything can happen in a, a three game, a five game, a seven game sample. Like it's just not enough time to determine who's the better baseball team. It's who's the healthier baseball team and who's the hotter baseball team. Like who's playing better right now you know any postseason game i think is much more of a 50 50 proposition than people appreciate and sometimes you flip that coin three times and it's heads on each one <laughs> now all of a sudden yeah. the team that won a ton during the regular season is out uh, yeah i get i get that i think it is in some ways extremely impressive to to have that best record ultimately the contest is to win the world series though so you gotta you gotta make your plans with that goal in mind and that's the to me it's still winning the world series even though the best team doesn't always win yeah not in my reality i think teams strays like regular season champion yeah. banner. like the like giants should raise a banner for like what they did last season it's way more impressive to me than what the braves did to win that much over a six month slog but like i honestly like the biggest benefit here for the blue jays is it just increases the margin for error you know, because like the Blue Jays can build a team that projects to win 95 games, but then Vladimir Guerrero Jr. misses two months um, or then like Bo Bichette has a long slump and underperforms. Then there's a pandemic that forces you to play like in three different home stadiums. And like I'll never be able to prove this, but I believe wholeheartedly that if the Blue Jays are at Rogers Center for 81 games last season they're in the playoffs i think they find that extra win i think they find two plus wins they don't even have to muck around in a tiebreaker scenario but like no matter how competitive the blue jays look on paper going into a season like unexpected things happen and that uh, impacts your win expectancy as the season goes on so an expanded playoff field just like increases the error bars there and just allows you a bit more leeway to underperform your win potential for whatever it could be records in one one run games right which are often impacted by by luck like that could be it as well so it just gives you more opportunity to get into the dance and, and I think ultimately this is good for fans I actually I, I believe that if you have 12 teams out of 30 that's a nice ratio to me and fans then, you know, especially because there will be different incentives for the teams that say win the division. So you're still incentivized to keep winning and to perform as well as you can down the stretch. So there's intrigue for more fans for a bigger part of the season. And it, it yeah, I just think that's a good thing for the game. Um, I, I think that those pennant races are really fun. You get to August. It's kind of the main sport in town at that point. August, September, you have the stretch run. You really have some high stakes. I think that's a good thing for for Jays fans and, and for baseball fans broadly. And I don't know if we'll see this, but one thing that has been on the table in these talks is divisional realignment. I know the the, the Players Association talked about the possibility of going to four divisions. Um, and like I said, this is a pretty outdated proposal. I, know I don't think it's being discussed right now, but like that would really help the Blue Jays in a lot of ways. If they like broke up the AL East and they realigned the divisions, that would be huge. It's like not only because it's like less um, com competition for the division title or like not only because you're not going up against the Rays, Yankees, Red Sox for the AL East division title, but you would also, I assume, play fewer games against those clubs. So fewer trips to the Trop, fewer trips to Yankee Stadium, fewer to Fenway Park and more games against those Minnesota Twins or those Cleveland Guardians. It's like some of those like weak AL Central clubs um, or weak clubs in the AL West that you can beat up on a lot more reliably than the ones in the AL East. That, I think, from a strength of schedule standpoint, would be really beneficial to the Blue Jays as well. 
Yeah, I, I my understanding is that's not on the table now. I think we'll see the traditional AL East in 2022 because I think a realignment would be tied to expansion. And I've been told that expansion is not part of these talks at all. So expansion would be a bit further down the line. I mean, Major League Baseball should expand. That's, I again, that's part of this. When I talk about looking at things a bit more broadly and ways to, you know, think about the game in a way that everyone wins, I think expansion is one of those things um, that really would benefit all involved. More jobs for players, expansion fees for owners, and for fans, I think more teams are, are kind of fun. There's certainly the talent out there. So, but but at this point, my understanding is that's not part of the talks. And it's we're not going to open up this Pandora's box right now, but it would be about finding the owner that MLB feels would align with the way that yes. they want the sport run. So maybe less of the Steve Cohen, Mark Cuban, uh, you know, type of individual, uh, and maybe someone else. Uh, let's step away. But when we come back, uh, we'll talk more Blue Jays. We'll talk transactions. We'll talk about like what the life might look like on the other side of the lockout, what the Blue Jays still have to do this offseason, all that and so much more when we continue on At The Letters. It continues on at the letters, Arden Welling, Ben Nicholson, Smith. Quick reminder, if you ever want to reach out to us, you can get us at uh, at the letters at sportsnet.ca. Uh, and Ben's on Twitter at B Nicholson Smith. I'm on Twitter at Arden Zwelling. Uh, ben, at some point, the lockout will end. Don't know when, but it will at some point. And it will be sunny days and baseball will resume. And it will be absolute mayhem and chaos as uh, teams try to complete the second half of the offseason in an incredibly condensed time frame. Like the way this will happen is that uh, the, t- the two sides will agree on a CBA and they'll have this like joint press conference and they will announce that they've reached an agreement. And then there will still be like a few days after that where it has to be ratified and everything has to be signed off on and you know, cross T's, dot I's, all that stuff. You can't have transactions occur in that period the deal has to be ratified before anything can occur and then you've got from agreement slash ratification to camps opening five to seven days realistically and then you've got like three to four weeks of spring training so that's the time frame that we're talking about here and the business that is left to conduct we are talking about free agents like mlb free agents minor league free agents hundreds of players who need to sign deals and negotiate deals we were talking about trades uh contract renewals for zero to three guys arbitration cases um a rule five draft that hasn't occurred yet like all of this front office transactioning on top of getting players to your camps uh like getting staff to arizona and florida dealing with visas for overseas players who you haven't had contact with in three months figuring out housing for various guys doing your intake processes covid testing physicals picking up where you left off with like injured players um scheduling a spring training a day-to-day getting everybody on their progressions especially the pitchers towards being ready for opening day like planning for the regular season how do you even begin to approach this ben like how do you even strategize for what every team in mlb right now like understands it's going to be an incredibly chaotic period. 
Yeah, it's going to be absolutely wild. I think there's no question about that. Almost like you have the winter meetings combined with the start of spring training, which, you know, is a busy time in itself. That's when players are getting acquainted with their new sites and teammates and coaches and whatever else. So it it usually is a pretty big and busy time. Got a lot of storylines. Guys show up. Someone might tell his manager, hey, I'm actually kind of hurt. You know, my hamstring's barking. I can't start on time. There will be news like that, right? Because those conversations cannot happen right now. So if someone's hamstring is barking right now, they're probably not going to announce it on Twitter. They're probably, they certainly are not going to tell their team because they can't be in contact with their team. So we're going to have news like that that happens. There's always pitching injuries as well when camps open and guys push it for the first time. So there's going to be injury news. It's it's really, it's going to be wild. So to answer your question, how do teams approach this strategically? I mean, I think, you know, you have to figure out what the priority is. And so you have to sort through the things that you can deal with now, now. Um, so that means coming up with valuations on players with other organizations, determining where you value your own players, probably setting up a plan for the Rule 5 draft, and the stuff that can wait will have to wait. So I think stuff like extensions probably gets pushed, but you have to be prepared for the moment that it becomes official and becomes permissible for teams to actually talk to each other and to agents again. You need to know who those first calls are. You need to know you know which people are making which calls. And pretty much at 12.01 or whatever the time is, you are going to have the messages. I would imagine, this is what I would do, you would have the messages composed. Yeah. You would have them written in your drafts folder, you hit send the moment that the agreement is ratified and then you go from there. Yeah, I I promise you every team right now is having very extensive meetings about how to like about delegating and about just preparing and like what rules and responsibilities are going to be like you almost have to like organize it like you would an army, right? Like it's just like, okay, so 1201, who's reaching out to Scott Boris? Who's contacting the AGM with the Reds about their pitchers? Who's um, ensuring like the you know daily spring training schedules and pitcher progressions are being built out? Who's going to be working on this player's arbitration case? This is where the Blue Jays, I think, will be in a, you know, a, a better position than maybe some clubs just because they have a large front office and they have a lot of individuals who, we've talked to Ross Atkins about this on the podcast before, they have a lot of individuals who have experience in a lot of different areas in their front office that have been involved in a lot of different discussions. So there's a lot of people there who could take on different roles are going to have to take on different responsibilities just because of the volume of work that has to happen and then the really interesting thing that that will happen as this plays out and as transactions begin to occur is like every transaction has a little bit of a butterfly effect right so trevor story signs with someone that's one name off the list of alternatives for every infield needy team that includes you know, that increases like urgency for other teams to get something done with someone else that changes the you know the the board for other teams that you know brings Trevor Story to a different division wherever he goes and changes the win expectancy of a team and now you have to think if you're in that division about how different your your chances are now of qualifying for the postseason like say Oakland trades Sean Benaya to someone now every other team that Oakland was negotiating with on a Manaya deal 
has to pivot somewhere else if they're still looking to address their rotation, which would then change the market for a sunny gray, right? Which then changed the market for certain free agents. Now, all of a sudden, other teams are entering into the Kershaw Derby. I mean, like the the landscape is going to be constantly shifting as trade candidates and free agent names come off the board and every transaction is going to impact prices and negotiations elsewhere. So just staying on top of all that is going to be a really difficult and dynamic process that I'm really not sure how you even prepare for. Oh, yeah. And I mean, you know, to peel back the curtain a little bit, we, we think about stuff like this as well in, you know, our jobs as as writers or podcasters. You know, of course, you're thinking, all right, are we going to go to spring training? When would that be? What would that look like? You're realizing, too, there are going to be spring training storylines and you're going to have essentially this off season that's still happening. And so for a major league team, you have to balance those two things in a way that you don't normally have to. It's nothing new for these teams, for these GMs, to think about how do we react if Trevor Story signs with the Phillies or the Mariners or wherever he's going to sign. That's normal, but you're not normally doing that at a time that you're also assessing your own players in spring training games with what will almost certainly be a shortened spring. So you have less time to evaluate these players really means that the coaching staff will be essential as they always are to figuring out who looks good and who can contribute. Yeah. And player valuations could like change pretty dramatically as well. Say that like prospect who's like on your 40, like, so obviously isn't in minor league camp. He's not a big leaguer yet. So he's, you know, 20, 21 or whatever, an age where you can make like really big jumps and really big steps developmentally. Say that pitcher comes in with a few more ticks of velocity on his fastball or say that hitter comes in and all of a sudden he's actually like making better contact and he's putting up higher exit velos or his sprint speed has increased. That impacts player evaluations internally and externally. That could change the the landscape a little bit. See, if you're a club, like, the other thing to think about is like what the rules of play will be going forward in a new CBA. But we're like we're in this weird sort of in between right now where like half the offseason has already transpired and there's still like the second half to go. Like if you're the club, do you sort of assume that you're operating under the same rules when it comes to qualifying offers and you know who's eligible for arbitration super 2? etc like would you assume that some of those transactional rules wouldn't change until next off season or could there be this like weird situation where you have half the off season under one set of rules and the other half under another i think it could be the latter i think that you know for and that would impact players trade values right yeah. like the players for just to pick one example they've been seeking to basically increase how big the class of super two is so they want more arbitration eligible players now there's obviously players in that mix who now have let's call it one year and 80 days of service time whose livelihoods will be impacted by this that's what they're thinking about but from the team standpoint there would be a slight adjustment in trade value now you know I don't think we're talking major adjustments here. And I think the teams have a good enough sense of what to expect um, as they're doing this planning right now. I mean, the qualifying offers probably disappearing. Uh, That's not for sure, but they're probably disappearing because Major League Baseball has shown a willingness to take draft pick compensation, direct draft pick compensation off the table, um, which would be a big win for players. So, you know, we'll see um, how those details look. But I do think it kind of will be operating under a different off-season model for the second half. 
Yeah, so many things are, are going to change here. So that obviously would change, um, yeah, trade values. And like, you know, we know that a number of trades were discussed prior to the lockout that got pretty far down the road. And we didn't see many actually executed because I think there was just like this scramble of, you know, free agency and, and the names that are coming off the board and, and teams were putting a lot of energy towards that. But I think you're going to see trade talks move pretty rapidly on the other side of the lockout. And like, oh, look, yeah. Teams weren't supposed to talk to each other during the lockout about about trade. I don't know as a league, like how I don't know how you would police that, and I don't know like how far I can suspend my disbelief to say that thirty uh, front offices of hyper competitive, type A, cunning, intelligent, creative individuals didn't find a way to maybe advance some of those trade talks like and you know like so much of uh modern front officing and mlb is about finding gray areas and loopholes it's hard for me to believe that there hasn't been some front office personnel locating and exploiting loopholes and finding ways to advance those discussions i don't know where you land on that but you know aside from just free agency and like the you know pretty like wild amount of activity we're going to see there I expect a lot of trades pretty pretty soon after the lockout as well. A hundred percent. I had someone predict that within five minutes of the end of the lockout, all three Reds pitchers will be traded. And <laughs> you know, that's that's a group that the Jays have had interest in. I mean, they have interest in all three, Castillo Gray and Tyler Malley, as as you would expect for a team seeking pitching. So and the Jays, by the way, were pretty aggressive in looking at trades for pitchers leading up to the to the lockout. So certainly something that's that's on their radar but yeah i mean i think that the, the question is really interesting as to whether front office employees would have these discussions i tend to think that it would be oh man i don't know if i'm naive in thinking this but i think it would be at the gm level or higher like i don't think anyone under that level would mess around with their own job security or livelihood like i think that would be dumb to do that if they did now Let's say you got GMs and they're they both happen to be in Scottsdale and they run into each other on a jog or whatever the case. Yeah. I mean, they might say, "Hey, we should talk." How do you police that as the league? Yeah, I don't think that these guys are emailing or WhatsApping or right. you know whatever the case specific trade stuff. I really don't. But if they run into each other in person, there could be a general, "Hey, you know, we should talk." But then, how do you square that with the Reds executing three major trades within five minutes of the CBA? You know, we'll see if that actually happens. Then clearly um, the groundwork was was there maybe before all of this happened because there was a lot of trade talk before. Certainly Cincinnati has had a lot of time to think long and hard about whatever offers they had. And maybe it won't come to that. But I, I mean, that would be pretty interesting if that happened. When it comes to free agency, I almost um, wonder if there's also going to be an opportunity for teams to be really opportunistic. Like I feel like there will be players who are really feeling the pressure of not having a job for uh, however many months you know the, the lockout went on and then still not having a job not having a camp to go to not knowing where you're taking your family whether it's florida or arizona not knowing where you're going to be during the season um i wonder if there's gonna be players who simply just want to get that settled want to get in camp you know, maybe it's someone who has to kind of like win a 
a roster spot and win jobs. So the more time they give themselves to do that, the better, obviously, for them. And so I wonder if there are going to be some free agents who are accepting a lower value than than they would have imagined entering the offseason, you know, particularly in that like, you know, bench piece, part-time player market, that back-end starter market, uh, the relief market, especially. I wonder if you're gonna see some pretty like decent, impactful one-two win players taking some deals that might surprise you. And I think that the front offices that are best prepared for that could be really opportunistic here and this is unfortunate for the players obviously because like i I want players to be paid as much as as possible but i think there's going to be some really like low value short-term deals that actually provide a lot low value to the player provide a lot of value to clubs yeah i think that's a really good point because especially for players who might have been seeking, you know, on the edge of, are they getting a major league deal, minor league deal, you know, that tier of player. Yeah. They really benefit from being in spring and having the chance to earn that roster spot. So I would think from minor league deal candidates who are trying to earn that final spot in the bullpen. Absolutely. If you move quickly, there would be opportunity there. Now for your Chris Bryant's, your Trevor stories. I mean, I think those guys are getting paid regardless. I don't think that there's really probably much of a bargain to be found there. But um, at the lower end, yeah, I think that's that's pretty interesting. And the thing that we typically always see during spring training is negotiations on possible extensions, because like typically spring training is like this front office dead zone where just you're dealing with the day to day stuff and like who's been hurt and stuff. But typically your roster building is complete and your arbitration cases are settled and your contract renewals and all that stuff. The rule five draft is in the rear view. It's not gonna be the case this year and that's why i think it's pretty unlikely that we see some extensions during the spring because there's just not going to be enough resources for front offices to like pay it the appropriate amount of attention like it's a huge massive decision when you're extending somebody particularly when you think about the blue jays candidates you know vlad Bo, Teoscar, like they're massive decisions a lot of moving parts and you got a front office that already has way too much on its plate um so that it, maybe that's different for players like uh like an aaron judge or a dansby swanson who are like a, a year from free agency maybe mm-hmm. that's a little bit different but for guys with like multiple years of club control remaining like the blue jays extension candidates i think it's pretty unlikely that we see uh you know real groundwork being being made towards an extension and i think that if that is something that both sides are motivated to do and if it does look like you know a realistic chance of it happening it's something that you know would have to bleed in to the regular season yeah i think that when you look at the priorities that teams are going to have coming out of this thing it's clearly going to be the free agents and trades because they're there's a shelf life for how long you actually have to to make those decisions so i i think definitely extension talks get pushed back by at least a few weeks while that gets sorted out um and for the jays yeah i mean now they can certainly go through the internal process of determining where they would make an offer to Vladdy, and they can have that all lined up but you know to actually sit down with him and his representation and you know begin those conversations with the kind of attention and respect that they obviously deserve that's probably not going to be on day one after the lockout and then speaking of extensions the last thing i wanted to hit on you with you uh with you here today ben was uh the report that juan soto declined a 13 year 350 million dollar extension with uh with the washington nationals 
What did you make of that news? What kind of impact do you think that has on the Blue Jays, who have some pretty elite <laughs> players that they may be looking to extend themselves going forward? Yeah, exactly. I mean, you look at, at Juan Soto, just an incredible player and someone who has put himself, obviously, in a great position. I think, and he's closer, we should say, off the top. He's three years away from free agency as opposed to Vladdy and Bo. They are four years away. So Juan Soto is a three-plus player right now. That obviously impacts things in a in a big way here. To me, when I look at that number, I you know it it feels, it feels almost insane to say, of course, but it's just an easy no for for Juan Soto. I think when you look at where he's positioned himself already, he's got some millions in the bank. You know, he's not worried about you know is he going to be able to make his mortgage payment if interest rates go up? He's fine, and really, this is a chance about how much can he get as as a kind of legacy. Uh, contract here and he could be the first 500 million player in baseball that is certainly a possibility you look at max scherzer pushing the aav north of 40 million well that could happen for soto on a very long-term deal so you know 12 times 40 you start getting close to 500 million and to me that's the kind of territory that we could be looking at for a player who really is a modern day ted williams and and you know, so I don't know where you landed on this one, but I look at 350 and that seemed low. No, yeah, it definitely was low. And I think it was an easy no for Boris and uh, the, Soto's represent, uh, agent, Scott Boris and, and Soto in particular. I mean, you look at it, Soto earned $8.5 million through arbitration last season. He's projected by MLB trade rumors to earn $16.2 million this season. So like that's like $25 million in the bank over two seasons alone. That allows you a greater ability to bet on yourself, particularly, you know, being, like you said, three seasons to, to free agency. Um, so it has been pretty durable throughout his his career. Um, and he's already been paid more like after this season with the 16 mil through arbitration. He'll already have made more than the vast majority of players make right. in their careers. <laughs> so he's in yeah. a pretty good spot. And if he continues to be as good as he's been and as durable as he's been, we're now looking at platforming off 16 million this year into like 24 25 million in year three of arb and there's a fourth year because soto's super two so you go from 24 25 to 32 33 set some records yeah right you are setting arbitration records you are looking at like 70 plus maybe even 75 million dollars over the next three seasons through arbitration before you even reach free agency as like an uncommonly young free agent because Soto debuted so early as a teenager. I mean, Soto, and he's got a late birthday too. So he's going to be a free agent in his age 26 season. Like Manny Machado was super young when he was a free agent, but like he was turning 27 and he got 10 years, 300 million. So Soto could argue in three in free agency that it's like actually 11 years or 12 years that he would be looking at getting at, at his age in free agency. And then, yeah, you look at him being in the echelon of player who can command a $36, $37 million AAV, if not more. So really, yeah, like, like a fair extension offer needs to be $450 million plus when you factor in arbitration and what Soto could reasonably argue right now he'll get on the free agent market. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. And I think, you know, it's a really interesting point about the the earnings that he has coming in because he's not on an extension. But here's the thing. One, and, and arbitration salaries are not guaranteed. 
right? And, and you know, so for most players, you look at those deals and you say, well, anything can happen. But here's the thing with Juan Soto. He's not getting non-tendered. The Washington Nationals are not going to wake up and decide he had a rough year or non-tendering him. So those deals might as well be guaranteed. He essentially is on a three-year $50 million contract as it is. Because, as I said, they are going to tender him each of those years. And even if he does nothing, then you don't take a a hit in arbitration. You stay constant. So, you know, with that in mind, he's working from a different kind of base than, say, Ronald Acuna Jr. was when he signed what has really turned out to be a very team-friendly extension with Atlanta. And if you're the Blue Jays, you are watching the Soto situation very closely because you have a very similar player um, or as similar as it gets, I guess, on your team in Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Like you line up the seasons that Vlad and Soto had in 2021, remarkably similar in terms of productivity. Now, obviously, Soto has more track record. Obviously, Soto is closer to free agency. You know, I think the Vlad very much needs to return in 2022 and be as durable as he was in 2021 and be as productive as he was in 2021, just to continue that proof of concept. But if Vladimir Guerrero Jr. can continue producing at, you know, Soto-esque levels, maybe even continuing to get better, Vlad, because he's still in his early 20s. I mean, Vlad's going to be on the same track as Soto is. And I mean, like, and Vlad is already actually like, he's super two as well. So he is entering his first year of arbitration projected to make $8 million. Soto made 8.5 in his first year of arbitration. So it would be the same arbitration track if, if Vlad continues to produce and be as healthy as he has been. So like Vladimir Guerrero Jr. could also reasonably expect to earn $75 million via arbitration and then also hit free agency at a very uncommonly young age at 26. Like it, 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 so many things are contingent on continued health and continued productivity, right? But if those things are constant with what we've seen to this point, Vlad is on the Soto track. So what happens with Soto in terms of either an extension with the Nationals or going to free agency and what he gets on the open market will be um, very informative as to what a possible Blue Jays extension with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. could look like because it would have to be similar. It would have to be buying out those Arb years for like around that $70, $75 million amount and then looking at 10, 11 free agent years um, in like the 36, $37 million range. So again, you were looking at like, if like today for Vlad, it would have to be buying out four Arb years plus let's give him 10 free agent years. That's 14 years. And it would have to be in like the mid $400 million range for it to be a fair offer, in my opinion. I wouldn't go quite that high. I would advise... You know, I think that Vladdy, you could very reasonably, very reasonably make him an offer at 350. And I think that'd be fair, personally, I think, because, you know, you're not paying full, full price on free agent years at this, this far point from free agency. When he's, yeah. yeah, when he's a two plus player. And I think the Arb years as well would also be valued lower because you're not going to presume these massive raises. You're going to, you're going to uh, scale it down a little bit and compress it a little bit. So his Arb years might be more like 50 or 60 if they were to be valued in an extension. So that being said, I do see Vladdy as being above Tatis at 340. Like if his agent were to ask for a deal starting with a four, I think that's, I I think that's too much personally. Um, But I think, um, you know, 350, I think is fair. 
And I think those are good points. Um, and that speaks to why like the Blue Jays ought to be very motivated to try to get an extension done with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. as soon as possible before he goes out and has another monster season in which he's durable and contending for an MVP award, like before he gets to the position Soto's in right now, closer to free agency and with more of an established track record because the price is only going to increase if that happens. And I think that also what we've just been saying, like like Vlad is in a similar situation to Soto in terms of having more leeway to bet on himself, um, not only because of like obviously his father was a pretty good MLB or a Hall of Famer, made a bunch of money. Vlad had a big bonus as an international free agent. He's due $8 million in arbitration this year. And as you said, like it would be pretty shocking if the Blue Jays non-tendered vladimir guerrero jr yeah so he, it's just not happening <laughs> so he can expect to work off of an eight million dollar platform going forward in arbitration and continue to make a bunch of money continue to make a lot more money than a ton of players going to see in their careers vlad's got a lot of leverage if he wants to go year to year and bet on himself and try to get to free agency as a 26 year old he's pretty well positioned to do so. So what happens with Soto, what happens with Vlad, like very interesting cases to watch going forward, uh, you know, and, and possibly some record-setting ones, both in arbitration and free agency as well. Yeah, exactly. And this is where, you know, of course it's a lot of money. And if a negotiation were to happen today, I'm imagining that the AAV for Vladdy's free agent years might be 30, okay? So that's a ton of money, but... It's still, you know, when Otani gets to free agency, when Wander, well, Wander Franco's not getting to free agency, but when Otani does, when Soto does, we could see deals that value the free agent years higher. So there is a possibility here where the Jays make a $350 million offer and it saves the money down the road because if Soto's 500 and that's where Vlad would have been, then all of a sudden you would have had to pay 510 to keep Vladdy the next year when he was a free agent. Hell yeah. And $30 million in 2022 money ain't the same as $30 million in 2028 money, in 2029 money, which is what we're talking about when you're buying out those free agent years. So like that also, like that cost control, that's also baked in. Like the value of $30 million, one presumes, is only going to diminish over time. So the Blue Jays got Vladimir Guerrero Jr. locked up to the deal that you are, uh, you know, betting on. I mean, it, it would depend on like, how you feel about his durability going forward, how you like how you project him going forward, considering you've only seen it for one season. Like, I don't have any reason to believe Vladimir Guerrero Jr. isn't going to continue to be like a generational elite, amazing talent, the MLB level. But we have only there is only one year of track record of him actually like proving that concept and fulfilling that. And then obviously there have been questions about his conditioning. There have been questions about his durability. He's not offering a ton of defensive value. Like, is this guy going to be a DH in his mid twenties? I mean, those are all factors that are baked into that. But if Vladimir Guerrero Jr. continues to be the Vladimir Guerrero Jr. that we saw in 2021 for the Blue Jays to be paying him just $30 million a year through X free agent years, it's a good deal for the club. Well, it's, yeah, it's so interesting because you think about, okay, 12, 13, 14-year deal. What's Vlad going to be at 35? I mean, that's a real question. Yeah. What What is he going to be? Is he going to be a first baseman? Is he a DH? What's his batting profile like? I mean, he's presumably moving slower at that point. What does that mean for his doubles total or his ability to leg out infield singles? What's his health like? So there's no obvious answer. There's no 
answer to those questions right now. But if you're the Jays, you have to be considering them. If you're thinking about extending him, then you have to really weigh those questions carefully. But you can't not think about extending Vlad either, because what's the point of having this amazing young player if you just concede that he's going to go and and play for a different team in four years' time? Yeah, pretty glad I don't have to make uh, these decisions and I don't have to <laughs> be the one spending that money. But we thank you all for listening to us. Uh, as always, like, share, favorite, subscribe, all that good stuff. Want to thank uh, our producers Nick Andrade and Christian Ryan. Ben Nicholson Smith is my co-host. I am Arden Swelling. And we will talk to you next time on At The Letters.